Hi, welcome to the 10th episode. I'm your host Noel Woodward and this is For the Love of. For the Love of Design, Education Against All Odds with Achyut Sethu. Achyut is an architect with an MSc in Design for Sustainable Development. Born and raised in India, the uncertainty of social impacts of any creation fascinated him. This continued interest led him to explore and participate at the grassroots level by empowering through design and ultimately giving back to those less fortunate. In this episode, Achyut takes us on a journey through his time at architecture school, his love for inclusive and participatory design, as well as a rather unconventional route to get to Africa via Sweden. From pleocracy to education against all odds, Achyut discusses his work as a designer in the domain of pedagogical transformation of childhood education in informal settlements as well as the future of the same. Hi Achyut, welcome to the show. I am extremely excited to talk to you about some of the work that you've been doing. So thank you for agreeing to join me today. Yeah, uh, it's a pleasure from my side as well. Let's just start with a brief introduction and then take it from there. Okay, so uh, my name is Achyut Siddhu. Uh, I'm an architect by profession. Uh, I've uh, done my bachelor's from SPA Bhopal and uh, my master's from Chalmers University of uh, Technology in Sustainable Development. Yeah, so currently you're in Madhya Pradesh and you've been working there for some time. So what have you been up to since the lockdown started? Since uh, when the lockdown started, I was still working with the government uh, of Madhya Pradesh uh, for the National Urban Mission. And uh, in between the lockdown, I I quit uh, I quit the job. And then a couple of months at home and then now back on, back on ground. So, yeah. We'll probably circle back to the National Urban Mission. Uh, but for now, could you talk about your time at architecture school and what exactly led you down that path? My intention of doing architecture was set up way, way before. I think I was in my sixth class or something because uh, I was sort of raised in that environment where uh, my grandfather was b- uh, building something and uh, architects used to come home. And then my father also was... Uh, in the similar industry, if you could say. And so I was constantly uh, surrounded uh, by uh, plans and views and renders. And I remember the first thing sort of which uh, fascinated me or sort of, you know, was a cementing thought that I will do architecture was sort of this spi- spiral plan of Auroville. It was then, it was then still a master plan. It, it, it didn't start, I guess. So I was really fascinated that you could use drawing to uh, to do some, as in, you know, make a living out of drawing. So that, that was the initial hook for me to get into architecture. Hmm. Auroville. That's an interesting backstory. So you had this dream of being an architect in sixth grade. Ultimately, you joined the School of Planning and Architecture, Bhopal. And I've had quite a lot of architects on the podcast and each of them have really insightful and interesting things to say about what five years of architecture school does to them. So could you elaborate on that a bit? 
uh, when uh, architecture school started off uh, i didn't really know you know what it takes to win architecture and uh, the initial years more than architecture the the environment of the school sort of it it's really uh, you could say uh, you enter into such a university at a formative years of the life so more than architecture you're just figuring out yourself <laughs> and uh, the university in, in that sense was uh, spa bhopal was uh, really as an i could say i'm really fortunate because it gives you that space more than more than me finding my skills as an architect which uh, i feel even now uh, i do not have that skill it was more about understanding what all it takes uh, for architecture to exist and very little of it is uh, design as more and more that you try and uh, get things on ground it's more and more about the other aspects rather than material and construction uh, for example as in uh, when i started off with my in my first year uh the the personality that you sort of bring from your school and high school and secondary i was sort of a really shy and introverted kid and then eventually college uh, sort of uh, pushes you out of this comfort zone and then when you when there is a need so architect as in the courses majority of them in your uh, initial years are really uh, about group assignments and uh, it's sort of uh, like any course i can't say architecture does it better but uh, it sort of uh, pushes you to change what this uh, existing mold that you have been carrying all these years and uh, for example as in uh, we had this studio called integral studio uh, it was a i think it, it's a really uni- i don't know i don't know if the university still does it but when it started off it was a really i think revolutionary idea that you that you pick students from every year and you collaborate and i i, I remember that uh, when we first started off uh, we 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 ended up being the last uh, we got the lowest points and then the next year we sort of stuck to the same group and we won it and that process of uh, you know redemption as in losing and then winning it was not really about our skill as an architect it was in that in those 10 days of uh, integral studio uh, more of us realized that many many other skills come into the production of architecture uh, like for example we had a in our group uh, you you interviewed two people already in your podcast nepun and tarun but uh, there was another person nikhil mittal and his his job uh, was sort of he he never put a single uh, mouse on the computer or a single line on any sheet but but i could say that he was he had an equally or rather a more important role in our win because uh, if if you assumed the position of a leader in a team or if you assumed the position of a thought leader this guy was a person who would keep the engine running he was sort of the lubricant 
if there was friction he would cool that space down so it, we didn't really the, the group sort of never was about who would uh, steal the thunder or sort of that so that i think that not not about not the fact that we won but the fact that how we won or rather how we lost and won together we didn't really change anything it's just that we realized uh, what our roles should be and even today like even today when i indulge myself in uh, projects that that may end up as uh, you know images building images but all of these skills of you you do not need everyone to just revving their productivity at 100% <laughs> it's not it's not an efficient machine at all if every component is running at 100% so even today i carry those lessons uh, from architecture school that and architecture school sort of uh, gives you that space to fail and redeem yourself i don't think the world is that kind <laughs> so yeah that sums up my architecture school as in it really gave me a space to keep failing and keep rising keep failing and i think nikhil would enjoy that metaphor <laughs> <laughs> but but on a serious note uh, that's true the field yeah. cannot function without it being participatory and collaborative in nature and i completely resonate with the feeling of identifying understanding and imbibing thoughts yeah. ideas and processes that have nothing to do with the field but at the same time have everything to do with it so moving on you decided to do your msc in design for sustainable development in sweden could you talk a bit about your experience as a designer in a pedagogical sense as well as the cultural aspect associated with your time in a new country so uh, if i could explain why i chose that university or that course it was really not about the university or the course it was uh, when i finished my thesis i had this uh, you know uh, you could say a burning desire to put myself in difficult situations because my thesis uh, my bachelor's thesis uh, was uh, i wanted to really explore architecture in extreme environments uh, so initially it was uh, as an i didn't choose for it to be like that but in as an as an chance uh, had it that i had to work my thesis site was in kutch and it was uh, a, a very difficult site as an even though i didn't consider any of those difficulties in my design uh, but it really the end of my bachelor thesis uh, led me to think that i really need to explore architecture in extreme environments and extreme environments doesn't mean just climatologically extreme or uh, it's just in extreme social situations or in extreme economic situations so when i was sort of searching for what course to do i just typed architecture in extreme environments and it just led to this university's website uh, where they had uh, this course called reality studio and the description was that they take 20 students to uh, sub saharan africa uh, they leave there and you have to figure yourself out they have broad themes of the studio and you have to figure yourself out so my intention to go to sweden was to go to africa because deep down deep down i had this feeling that 
I don't think I would be able to go to Africa directly. And so this was sort of this route. And uh, if you talk about the pedagogy there, there was in 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 comparison to uh the bachelors masters was really shockingly different because uh, there was uh, you could say the the faculty or the professors uh, you needed no obligation to ask for their consent uh their only question or their only comment was you should know how to think for yourself and uh, the course was uh, such that uh, the courses was not uh, really a studio kind of environment where there is a brief say design a cultural center and the whole semester you sit and make a cultural center no it was not like that uh, it was uh, a semester was divided into two parts uh, there was a short course and there was a longer studio and the short course is sort of a base for the longer studio and it was really socially rooted so in the first semester they would take us to this small little uh, village in sweden they would uh, and they had this really uh, unique way of taking people and dropping there they would just drop you there with a few key people and leave <laughs> and then you have to figure yourself out and uh, you you have to figure uh, whom you want to team up with uh the size of the team or the group was up to you uh, the only rule was you cannot work alone so the core of the pedagogy was like that that we put you in a situation you respond so it sort of although uncomfortable at first you it really forces you to enhance your perception like you you really are forced to look at things the way they are because now now you have no uh, theory or or uh, books to you know exaggerate your own biases and th- that was really lovely as in that was really transformational as an individual yeah mm, yeah what you just spoke about the experimental nature of the studio is very similar yeah. to how you went about framing some aspects of your thesis as well and we'll come to that but before we do your yes. bio talks yes. about your continued fascination with uncertainty of social impacts at the grassroots level as well as empowering through design so at architecture school we laid a lot of emphasis on designing for all if you recall which was an entire design semester where we conceptualized projects keeping inclusivity in mind so was this the catalyst that drew you towards this sphere no it wasn't at all as in uh, when i uh, wanted to pursue my masters uh, frankly at that point i was really into making 3d visualizations and uh, illustrations and i really wanted to uh, genuinely become a technician a person who could use softwares well and fit into uh, an atmosphere where a technician is needed and i really wanted to be that even even when i applied for that university to go to kenya i really wanted to be a good technician because somewhere i had this assumption that that is the way where architecture would go where this profession would go that it would become more and more technical in nature rather than 
uh, i i felt that the human touch was going and i i need to adapt to it i need to ride the wave uh, so i don't think there was any catalyst it it just so happened that it happened it that, panned out uh, that way cool yeah. let's just pivot and dive into some of your work now one of the projects is playocracy which is a project that you and your team worked on in an informal settlement in Kenya the project focuses on pedagogically transforming formative education by including creative play in both the teaching and learning process of the child and over here in the settlement you're trying to help orphans and vulnerable children so could you explain more about what exactly the project is and what it set out hmm. to ultimately achieve hmm so this this was the first project that uh, i uh, involved myself through the reality studio and uh, if i could indulge in into what the studio is in depth it is again it takes design students not necessarily architecture design students it takes them to any sub saharan africa african country uh the studio every year has uh, varying uh, broad themes but uh, you are in no way uh, obliged to choose any you can choose your own so what they do is uh, it is sort of a very uh, cruel way of uh, exposing yourself to the uh, realities of the world so what they do is they take you to in my year it was kenya so you fly from sweden to kenya and you reach there in the night and the very next day you are taken to the most horrendous way of human settlements ever you are taken to this slum called kibera it's i think one of the biggest uh, slum in africa or something like that and uh, it's it's really it it really as in shakes you to the core so they have this system called flying toilets uh where uh, the settlement uh, if you it's a very very dense settlement so the passages are uh, not even uh, not even 2 feet wide so you really need to crawl around uh, these settlements and uh, the back of the houses face each other so people excrete and throw them in uh, plastic packets outside so most of the time you are really walking on human feces so the previous day you are in kushinas on sweden and the next day you are walking on shit and it it and then you look at people living in such situations and it really sort of like for a person from india i was the only indian on the coast and you could sort of say that yeah i have see, seen slums i have seen poor uh, poor settlements but this is this is way beyond that and for for a person who is in sweden it it really you know it breaks their heart they 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 go into this uh, uh, feelings of guilt ashamed uh, feelings of privilege and all these feelings start flooding your mind so they do this to you for for a continuous week straight and then they leave you they take you to another uh, city we went to a city called kisumu and they leave you with uh, local grassroots uh, agencies a few of them and they leave you with these themes and now you are on your own so when we were on our own uh, so there's also a process where uh, you sort of 
people who want to work in the same uh, domain sort of group up so i i grouped up with three other people uh, there was a person from france a student from france a student from uh, sweden two students from sweden a student from france and one of me and uh, we sort of decided to work with children because that was one of the theme and we were going through the uh, so this slum it's called obonga and it's uh, it's it has a reputation of being called a robbers den so it's it's the poorest slum in kisumu and uh, it's 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 also uh, the epicenter of the aids ep- epidemic and so you have this the social situation that it created was in the 80s when the aids epidemic started uh it created now a social situation where the adults are gone leaving behind children so there are more children than adults and so there is new social fabric where people who have survived take care of these children and uh, it also created an alternative provision of education called abbet schools apbet uh these are neither governmental not nor private they are in between so there sort of this you know uh, like an extended version of our anganwadis and uh, we were working with one of such school uh, for orphans and vulnerable children and quickly quickly very quickly we realized that these children have very complex emotional needs like you grow up without uh, having uh, to drink breast milk uh your your food is not that nutritious so it 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 really affects the way you grow uh it really affects the way you perceive education it also really affects your uh, daily routine that they have to take up adult responsibilities so we we very quickly realized that a conventional form of education will not work here it was anyway not working but it it needed a radical change there was no way of you know uh slightly changing it nudging it here and there because the user base is completely different and uh, we started researching in the beginning we started teaching for a while and we found out that maybe through play it it was i wouldn't even now say that what we proposed was a genius there but uh what we t- tried to do was to turn the limited time that they had in school into a joyful process and uh, fortunately we were working in a school uh, with this 90 year old tamarind tree and the kids sort of naturally loved playing more than sitting in classrooms so we decided uh, to sort of uh, create a tree house that is what it ended up being but we wanted it to be a space where the classroom is outside it's no more inside the classroom it's no more a person with a blackboard and kids in front so we wanted every aspect of this design to have some teaching uh, uh pedagogically uh initially obviously there there is a, a little uh, uh, reservations about this Uh, the teachers uh, were reserved about this uh, but then what we did was we 
build this triage with the children we wanted to prove to the teachers that if the kids have taken adult responsibilities they could do what the adults are doing and so we created this uh, the the process of building was such that the kids could build it and i wouldn't like to go into a detail because it it, it would need reinforcement of pictures and videos but it in the end sort of the entire it started off with just the school with 40 children but the, in the end sort of there were hundreds of children who came to the site every day to f- finish building it and uh, the, even though we had learnings from it uh, for example the the building is not meant to last the structure is not meant to last we expected it to last but children used a space much roughly than it is and the biggest win for us is when we came back to sweden we had criticism that this structure it does a lot but it won't last so you're creating a you know there's this no uh, there's this uh, regular criticism of such form of architecture volunteerism where it creates this cycle of you know dependency where they are constantly dependent on outside support for development but one thing that we accidentally did right i i still do not say that we actually intended for such things to happen but what it accidentally did right was since we involved people there or children not even people the advantage that we had is children do not have vested interest they they just want to have fun and it led to a situation where there were more than what the school wanted uh more kids coming there than the school wanted and it it leads to you know kids kids are kids like to have their own territories so if uh, people from outside start coming and they have these couples with them the project actually went to court in kenya that why is there a place in this slum where kids are uh, aggregating and creating a mess and the the court sort of uh, it led to a situation where they were deciding whether to break it down or not and eventually the court decided that the place actually brings children together in a in a place where there is sexual exploitation there is uh, harassment uh, deplorable conditions of living it's just it's just a space that gives respite so since the project got unwanted attention there were people from outside who donated toilets to that school it sort of gave attention to that school and there was uh, small little developments that happened around it that is where i realized that okay as in it is very important to create these networks of change before you start a project this was unintentional that happened but it was it is the, there's a need for it to be planned for a larger impact to happen and that is what led to the next my master's thesis where i went back again yeah so the experiment actually galvanized people and was the catalyst for bringing in much needed attention and vital services plus infrastructure yeah i really want to go deeper into this because there's so much more that you guys did and went above and beyond a small design exercise So what I found extremely interesting was the fact that you and the team focused not only on the design interventions of addressing the many issues but also you focused and stressed upon the way these kids are being taught mm. which was the basis of this assignment and module 
So within this framework, you had various heads. The first was exploration, but there's this paragraph as part of your research that struck me in particular, mm. afraid of being wrong, where there's a song for appreciation and another for shaming someone. So how did you go about this entire process of documenting, analyzing, and subsequently implementing your research? And just going back to this, why the need for plurocracy? The need for plurocracy, uh, again, if I have to delve into it, it was because an existing system is not working. And uh, it was because this there is a social fabric where a child's voice is not being represented in society usually what happens if in in our society where we where people are fortunate to have parents and there's a fabric of family uh, the, the child's voice is represented in some form or the other it's given a voice at least within the house but when that is not happening a child's need a, a longing to learn is still there right as in you can't it's natural it has nothing to do with the social fabric so that is not being quenched and you you see that there that longing is there when you see kids making their own games when you see kids making their own toys uh, when you see kids uh, making their own way of learning where the older teaches the young that that natural longing to learn is there but the but the fabric is corrosive for that so the need for plurocracy arises because of that there's an existing system that is not working for example in 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 kenya in schools of kenya there are there is a constant stress for the next generation not to repeat the mistakes of the earlier generation of aids so so one uh sort of fascinating or uh, sort of you know things that shake you is ever ever since kindergarten there are songs which teach you what a good touch and a bad touch you might say that it is progressive but no it's it's response to what the previous generation has done wrong and even within the existing education infrastructure uh, the teachers and the people who run school there is an urge for some change that it is not working the conventional system is not working because if you teach something at school there are no parents that you can go back at home and reinforce that learning but then you and me both know that we learn better when we are enjoying when when we play when when we compete or when when uh, learning is experiential so the need for plurocracy arose with this gap we as in plurocracy doesn't solve it it just puts to light what is the gap yeah it shines a light and brings focus to it hmm. the second head of the framework is where you talk about experimentation the principles of plurocracy which are freedom of expression empowerment of the individual and inclusive diversity where the team conducted participatory exercises as a strategy to not only learn more about the users who in this case mm-hmm. are the children but also impart a sense of confidence and inclusivity in the learning process so what kind of methods did you adopt to help impart this okay 
so uh, initially we wanted them to uh, get out of this notion that you have to succeed or you'll you'll be shamed or else you will know, as in you have to pass this exam or else this will happen or else that will happen so we used to conduct exercises where they deliberately fail so we had this uh, so their school uh, part, half of their school was sort of this mud construction it was sort of a mud hut that they converted into classrooms and it was uh, breaking down and we uh, what we did was uh, we told the children to uh, go around their community and gather as much clay as possible and we we didn't tell them what we are going to do because then the metrics of success and failure are decided in your mind so at, till the end we didn't tell them so the plan was that we would uh, patch up this uh, wall and we knew it would fall because there there was they were just using clay so it would dry up and just break but for just for one that one day we wanted all of these children to come together to fix a problem because that's what that's what you wanted them to do that the people of the community get together to fix a problem that is what is missing and we wanted them to realize that you don't need money you just need people to come together that's the biggest problem even adults have you and me know there are problems in society but uh, are you and me ready to come together and do it no so we wanted those basic questions to be instilled in a in in a individual in this case a, a child that we are going to build this wall we it's not to fix it. it you you just have to make so what we did was we told them to make clay rings and uh, you you could see that it was sort of a fabrication machine sort of uh, the younger kids making uh, small small donuts and the bigger ones making bigger ones and there was this natural leader in the kid who would uh, you know not do anything but <laughs> sort of make the machine go smoothly uh, and they finished the wall in the entire day and next day it rained and it washed away so this time but they didn't feel shame because now they realized okay we failed together right who who will you shame shame is a very personal experience you failed as a collective we'll try again so we had many of these exercises where they deliberately failed but as a group so we sort of you know uh, get got them out of this notion that it's okay there is as a <laughs> there is no need for you to think that what if you're just trying to fix things to the best of your ability that, that's all you can do right yeah i think this episode will give an insight into what more there is to the design field and how we can go about making a difference it's not only about building architecture and design can't change the world alone but if the collaborative process which already exists within the sphere extends itself you know beyond its boundaries and adopts a multidisciplinary approach not that it's non-existent it's just not that prevalent then we could be looking at some interesting outcomes yeah so moving to the third head which is implementation where you take all that mm-hmm. you've learned and you convert it into a physical intervention in this case it was yeah. a playground which to be honest sounds extremely mm-hmm. cool i love to design one of those 
So what kind of playground was this supposed to be? And how do you guys go about conceptualizing and ultimately building it? So this playground was sort of so the the reason it was it became a tree a tree house is because of the tree and uh, we would see that uh, people or kids who reach a certain age were able to naturally climb this tree it it was a tam- tamarind tree so it huge trunk and huge branches and kids would naturally climb the top of it and eat the fruit but there were younger kids who couldn't but they would still aspire to climb it so our approach was to just provide platforms at various heights along this tree that different ages people uh, kids of different abilities could use different spaces of the tree so kids who could climb all the way up to the top would reach the v of the uh, trunk from where they could climb the tree so our intention was to create these platforms along at different heights along the tree and the spaces beneath these platforms would be spaces where classes can be conducted and uh, the the pub, the materials or the filler materials were all con- uh, finished or rather fabricated through these workshops that we kept having with children for example uh, the deck of the uh, this tree house was wood and it was a circular concentric uh, structure so you would the consequences that uh, uh, if you use wood planks they would have a lot of offcuts so all these offcuts we created a giant uh, jigsaw puzzle that created a, that made the partition of this uh, tree house so the kids uh, took these offcuts and uh, uh, you know we gave them sort of a uh boundaries around which they have to fit these pieces and they build the wall so in in we had such workshops where they built different components of the building all we gave them was a framed structure that was the first part of the episode next week we return and continue our conversation exploring education against all odds the national urban mission and policy and advocacy in design there are a couple of links in the show notes so do check those out subscribe to us on anchor spotify apple podcast pocket cast and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast follow us on instagram at for the love of podcast or write to us with your thoughts ideas comments at connect@forthelovepodcast.in Thanks for listening. This is for the love of.